All right, good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It's good to see everyone on this nice, warm Sunday. All right, it's a far cry from Sunday, what, a week ago. And it's very cold. <laughs> um, but it's a blessing to worship the Lord with you this morning. A couple of quick announcements as we get started. Um, uh, just an update, um, we did sign our, uh, our lease agreement just to renew that lease for the building. Um, so that's, that's done, taken care of. Uh, we'll have more details on that in our um, quarterly budget meeting that will be coming up sometime in March. So, um, but just keep everybody in the loop. We've signed that. We're good. Um, so we continue to have a place to worship. That's a blessing. So we appreciate that. Um, items on the calendar coming up tonight is going to be our monthly men's meeting. That will be here in the church building at 630. Uh, men come for a time of prayer and fellowship together as we uh, look at the word. And that will that's tonight, 6.30. Yeah, yeah, 28th. Tonight, 6.30. Um, our monthly mich- uh, missional community leaders meeting, that'll be next Sunday um, at, uh, at 6.30 here at the church. 6.30, we hadn't really pinned the time, but I figured 6.30. So, uh, 6.30. Any MC leaders, if that's in Sunday. I'm sorry. That's all right. Your missional community leader. Yeah, that's what, what time 6.30. Next Sunday. Okay. Um, that's okay that's all right um uh the evangelism training remember that was something we were pinning for uh, we put on the calendar last year for april covid hit and that had to get tabled so now we're pulling it back up and we're going to try and do the start around the same time this year uh, at the end of april so that'll be april 25th through june 13th we won't be meeting for memorial day weekend um, and uh, or Mother's Day weekend, uh, so that'll be Sundays at uh, between six and seven. We'll pin down more details as we get closer, but uh, uh, just go ahead and mark your calendars for that. That'll be Sunday evenings um, in April, April twenty fifth through June thirteenth. Um, I think that's it. Alan, did you have anything else for me to add before? I Transition. Okay. All right. Uh, just as we do every week, take a look around, see who's not here. We have several folks who are out sick. Um, we have others who uh, are out still quarantined due to COVID. Uh, so take a look around, see who's not here, um, and send a note to them. Send a message. Uh, give them a call. And just say, "Hey, we missed you. How are you doing? Um, how can I pray for you this week?" Do do a uh, do take the opportunity to reach out to your brothers and sisters in Christ and, and do that. We have several guests with us tonight, so we welcome you all uh, this morning. I hope you're blessed as you worship with us. Uh, church family, take opportunity, uh, meet new folks. Uh, just a reminder for our COVID policy, of course, masks are not required, um, but do consider the health of others uh, as you move around and as you fellowship together, as you worship. Just remember, not everybody lives at the same level of risk as, uh, as one another. Um, if you or your children use the restroom, which are located on either side uh, of the stage, uh, use them at any point during the service. Please make use of the cleaning items that are in there just to wipe down any surfaces that you use. At the close of the service, you're welcome to fellowship. Certainly take uh, opportunity of the nice weather to fellowship outside, which gives you opportunity to spread out. All right. Well, let me uh, we'll tra- transition, and uh, our call to worship this morning comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus 13, verse 21 and 22. Here we find the Israelites having plundered the Egyptians and uh, are at the cusp of getting ready to cross the Red Sea and the Lord's provision for them. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light 
that they might travel by day and by night. He did not, and here's the point, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Let's pray. Father God, what encouragement we have from your word this morning of your faithfulness. Father, to a timid people who who left slavery, whom you called out in the chapter before says you've done it with a mighty and strong hand. And yet they're timid. They're broken. They're fearful. They're doubting. And yet your faithfulness shines as you placed a pillar of cloud before them and a pillar of fire. And Moses records for our benefit that you did not remove that from before them. Father, what grace it is that we have Christ before us. Him who was high and lifted up. Body torn, broken for our sins. If any believer here has reason to doubt and question, am I worthy? Am I going to make it? Your word says, see him whom I lift up, lifted up upon a pillar. See Christ who intercedes on your behalf. Come to him for his burden is easy and his yoke is light. So Father, we come as a broken people this morning in need of your grace, in need of you to lift the eyes of our hearts to see our glorious King and Savior, the one who leads us in the way. So Father, would you meet with us this morning, stir our affections for Christ, secure truths in our heart that we might walk in boldness and faith for your glory. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. Stand together, if you will. punch my code into the iPad or my kids like to get into my my iPad and change my my background to things that I don't want my background want to echo what Austin said uh, with regard to anybody that's visiting with us today we have several visitors again welcome we hope you are shown great hospitality um, it's our privilege to have you visit with us today. Um, Heather, good to have you back from Florida. We miss Jeremy greatly, but as you are his better half, we will take you. So uh, it, is, it, is all, it is all good. Uh, Jeremy's in quarantine right now, and uh, he, we've been able to text back and forth with him, so that's been good. He's doing, he's doing really well out there, despite the fact that he's having to be in quarantine for potential COVID stuff. So, um, but he is, he is doing well. It's been encouraging to get word from him. Uh, as to how he's doing at basic. So anyway, all right, let's, uh, let's sing together. Caroline, you can cut this back on.
Austin and children, if you want to come up and join him. All right. Good morning. Kids, y'all come on down. My children, too. Don't you love it when your dad's the pastor? All right, let's see. I'm gonna, I'll stand over here so I can see everybody. How are y'all doing this morning? Good. Great. Glad to see warm weather coming. That's exciting, isn't it? Right, right. Summer, it's getting here. It's getting close. We've got to get to spring first, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, as you guys remember, we've been going through this book, Big Truths for Young Hearts. Okay, it's sort of a systematic theology for, uh, for young children, for anybody who's not familiar with the book. Okay, we've been talking about God and who He is, okay, and all of His attributes. Okay, we've been talking about us, who we are as people made in God's image. Okay, bearing that image, that responsibility, how that image was broken, how sin came into the world and what that's done. And we've talked about who Jesus is and why Jesus is important, what he's done for us. Okay, and now we're to the work, the work that Jesus has done. We've talked about Jesus. Last week, we talked about Jesus as a hero. Remember, we talked about Jesus as a hero and him conquering sin and the effect and what that did. Okay, well, now we're going to talk about Jesus as a king. Okay, all right. Who knows what, what's a king? Anybody, any sacred? Okay, somebody who, who rules, right? I mean, you, when you think of a king, what do you think of? Like what? Okay, like a robe. Okay, maybe a robe. What else? When you think of a king, what do you think of? A crown? Okay, crown. What else? I think of dragons and knights and fair maidens, castles, medieval. Yeah, all of those things. Yes, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Aragorn. <laughs> All right. Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you the story of a king, uh, of, of the king in Scripture. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna read from some of this because Bruce Ware lays this out so clearly and so helpfully. Okay, so early on in Scripture, God gives the Israelites, right, the people of God in the Old Testament, He gives them the promise of a king. Okay, remember remember David. Who's David in Scripture? Anybody remember who's David? What did David do? David did, what did David do? Something you remember. Remember back before COVID hit and, you know, we were having children's, children's church. We had, you guys went over to little me. I know that was a while ago. Hopefully we can start that back up again soon. Okay. Remember we, we, you were going through the Bible. Okay. Talked about David. Anybody remembered what David did? I'll give you a hint. There was a really big guy and he had a battle with him, right? David and Goliath. Okay. Yeah. Same David. Okay, a little later, David becomes king, okay? And God gives David a promise in 2 Samuel, and he says, you will have a son who will build a house for me, okay? And he will be a king, and I will establish his throne in his kingdom forever. That's a big promise, right? So here's, you get a sense, God's giving a promise for a king who's coming, who's going to rule forever, okay? So Solomon is David's son. He rules after David, okay, and he's a great king. He has flaws, okay, remember he's broken by sin, okay, but he's a great king, all right, but then Solomon dies, okay, now God's promise isn't going to fail, okay, so there's a sense that this promise is not going to be fulfilled in Solomon, as great a king as he was, okay, because you know what happens after Solomon dies? The kingdom that was unified breaks apart. They get in fights, Okay, and they separate, they split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they don't get along at all. Okay? But God hadn't forgotten his promises. 
And so the prophets spoke a lot about this coming king. Now, does anybody know what's a prophet? In the Old Testament. I know I'm quizzing you this morning. This is tough. You didn't come prepared for this. Prophet was someone who claimed to speak for God. Okay? And they would tell the people, this is what God says. Okay? And so the prophets would, get, would speak of this coming king. One of the clearest pictures we have of this king, this promise of the king that's to come, was in Ezekiel. Ezekiel said this in Ezekiel chapter 37. Here's what God told the people. My servant David will be king over them. Now remember, this is long after David's been dead, okay? And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rule and be careful to obey my statutes. They'll dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, when, uh, where your fathers lived. They and their children, their children's children, shall live, uh, wait, I lost my place, <laughs> shall live there forever. And, my, and, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set them in my sanctuary and will be in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sets Israel apart when my sanctuary is in their midst. That's an amazing picture of God's future glory and his coming kingdom. Okay, and all that he would do, and that one that was greater than David would rule in his place. Okay, later in the psalm, Psalm 2, we get another picture of what this king's going to look like. Because God says in there, he says that this son, this king will be his son, will be God's son. Okay, so we have that picture of this king who's coming, who's going to be a greater king than David, greater than Solomon. He's going to rule forever, okay? And all the nations will know that the Lord is God through this king, okay? So this is the promise that's, that's given. And not only that, but this king is going to be whose son? No, Psalm is where it's written. That's good. It's close. Will be God's son, Okay? But then we get to the end of the Old Testament, and you know what? This promise isn't fulfilled. In fact, the Israel, the northern southern kingdom, they're, they're broken and in turmoil, okay? They're enslaved, okay? Part of them has been restored, okay? But you've got a big brokenness that's occurred right there. So the promise has still been unfulfilled, okay? And then we enter into the New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene, and here's what Jesus says. He says, the time is fulfilled. He said this in Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, okay? Think kingdom, think king, right? All those Old Testament promises. Do you think that, you know, when you hear the word candy, what do you think? Your ears perk up when you hear candy. Yes, I saw that. Yes. Now, I didn't bring candy like Mr. Allen did a couple weeks ago. Oh, he brought a dollar. Five bucks, yeah. Okay, but the point is, you hear that, your ears perk up. Oh, that's familiar. I like that, okay? When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, the Israelites who knew their Old Testament were waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Their ears perked up. Oh, the, uh, the time's at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Okay? One, of the, one, uh, one person in the Old Testament who, pro- who really, really heard this was John the Baptist. Okay? Remember, John the Baptist came and he paved the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. Okay? And he was sure of this. He's the one who baptized Jesus. And yet, Jesus comes, and he's not quite what everybody's expecting. Everybody's expecting this king to ride in on a horse with, you know, with the crown, right, and the robe, and, you know, just take charge and say, we're going to wipe all the Romans, everybody off the map, 
he's going to establish this kingdom. Well, Jesus comes in and he's a little bit different, right? Because he doesn't do that, does he? No, no. And so people are very curious, but they're also wrestling with who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And John the Baptist at one point, he's thrown in prison by King Herod. Remember, he's thrown in prison by King Herod. And he sends word to Jesus through his disciples. And he says, are you the Messiah? Remember, he, Jesus doesn't look like what everybody's expecting. Okay? Now, Jesus' response is very interesting. Okay? And I'll let you kind of, if you want to, dig into that on your own. But I'll tell you what he says is, you know, the, pe- the blind see and the lame walk. Basically saying, the Old Testament promises are being fulfilled in me for this kingship. Okay, but there's a, there's a process for it, okay? So that happens, all right? So, but, what, but what's going on, okay? Because the promises are being given, but this king, Jesus, okay, Jesus is the promised king, but he doesn't look like what everybody is expecting, right? You don't expect the king to come in and wash everybody's feet, do you? You don't expect the king to be humble, right? To be meek, to be mild, to be a servant. You don't expect that, okay? Anybody want to take a guess as to why Jesus came that way first, okay? Remember, he comes first (coughs) to earth. He lives, he dies on the cross. He's raised from the dead. We talked about that last week, the significance of Jesus being raised from the dead, okay? And then he's seated at God's right hand, and he'll come again. Anybody want to guess, why did Jesus come humble and meek and mild as a servant? What, Ellie? Nope. Okay. You had a thought, and it escaped you. Why? Okay. Okay, maybe. There's an element of faith that has to happen there, right? Because uh, John chapter 1 John tells us that, that Jesus gives light to all those who believe in him, right? He gives them the benefit of the privilege of being made sons of God. I'm paraphrasing, okay? All right, anybody, any other thoughts? I know I'm quizzing you. I, do, I don't normally do this, okay? All right. Okay, Jesus came first as the suffering servant, okay? You know, all the things we've talked about in the last few weeks about Jesus conquering sin, Right, doing battle, you know, having victory over Satan, giving us a new life because of faith in him. All the hope that this king would bring about, he had to be a servant first, okay? So he had to pay the penalty for sin. He had to suffer first in order to gain that kingdom, really. He would come as the suffering servant to take away the sins of the world. Okay, but scripture says he's coming again as the victorious king, okay? To reign and rule in righteousness, as Isaiah says, okay? That's what we expect from a king, isn't it, right? Is reign and rule, okay? He's reigning and ruling now, but he will come and he'll complete that reign and rule when he comes a second time, all right? Then he'll reign and rule in righteousness on the earth and the restoration of the people of God. That's what, that's what John wrote in Revelation. Okay? And that's what we wait for. We could say with John, come Lord Jesus, come. Okay? All right, well, thank you guys for listening, for your patience. Let me pray for us, and you guys can go sit down. 
Father God, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Thank you that we live in a time when we can read the story of the Old Testament and we can see your fingerprint on all the pages of history as you've brought about this promise of a coming king. Father, who wouldn't just only come to rule in all goodness and fairness and what is right and what is true, but Father, he would suffer first. He would take the punishment and the penalty that we deserve. And that he might hand his clean white garments to us that we might be clothed in his righteousness. That's grace, that's mercy. So Father, we give you praise and we thank you and we look forward to the day when Jesus will return and his kingship will be fulfilled and the kingdom will be complete. So Father, I pray for all these young ears, young and old alike, Father, who hear this morning, Father, that they might all put faith in Christ and trust in him until that day. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. All right, thank you guys. Y'all can go sit back down. Stand one more time, please.
whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon in righteousness mine. Evan says, why don't you use a device that's built to do that instead of using your ear? That doesn't work most of the time. And all I want him dear, built my life upon all this world reveres and wars to Spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my Join my righteousness and I love you more. Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours. To
Let's pray. Father God, you are our joy and our righteousness. That whatever temporal pleasures we may enjoy on this earth, they're only an echo of the joy we have in you. Seen through a veil dimly now. And experienced as best we can through faith. Fulfilled when Christ comes again. You are our righteousness. Clothed in the purity and righteousness of Christ. We have peace knowing that our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. And if you who fashion the butterfly in all its beauty and splendor, born with the knowledge of how to fly, when it comes out of that chrysalis, And Father, we can trust and know that when you say you cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, that they are indeed that far. We can know, Father, that when you say that you have given us all things necessary to make us like Jesus, that that is so. We walk in frailty, Father, and often unbelief. And we must confess with the man who pleaded that his son be healed. Father, help our unbelief. Father, many of us come this morning on the mountaintop of faith. And our faith is stronger today than it ever has been. And so, Father, we celebrate and we worship you freely, unencumbered. Father, many today come broken and weary in the trough of unbelief, looking high upon a wave that they fear would crush them. And so, Father, you know our frame. You know that we are but dust and that we're frail. So whether we're on the mountain, whether we come on the mountaintop today, Father, or we come in the depths of the pit. Would you meet with us? And Father, we ask that you would shore up the missionaries that we support across the world, Father, for as we're a local expression of your global body here at Haven Ridge this morning, Father, and there are many others, many other local expressions scattered amongst Greer and Greenville and the upstate and South Carolina and the various states and in, uh, in countries around the world. Father, we take opportunity to pray for the missionaries we support in Bangladesh, in Ireland, in China, Father, and ask that your hand of grace would rest upon them, Father, that wherever they are this morning, in brokenness, struggling over unbelief and frailty in their ministry, or Father, perhaps they are seeing the fruit of their labors or perhaps the labors of those who've gone before them. May they praise you in weakness or in strength. Father, would you be the rock underneath 
their work and their efforts. Would you give them courage to walk in boldness where you have planted them? Father, strengthen their families. That, Father, Satan would not touch them. That in their weaknesses, grace and mercy might abound. And that they would display and the families and the people around them not their own ability and their own righteousness, Father, that they would convey a righteousness that's been given to them. That it would be clear in the way they live their lives and their words that Jesus is the source of their hope. He is their anchor in the storm. And Father, for our local mission efforts, as people hear the gospel downtown at the abortion clinic and in coffee shops, Father, in homes even, would they hear it with eyes and ears of faith? Would they hear it with the ears of faith and would they see it in our posture, in our hands and our feet as we meet needs? That there wouldn't be a disconnect between our words and our actions, Father, but there would be a fluid nature that conveys genuineness, sincerity, true love for our fellow image bearers, that they would know Jesus and their, their lives would thrive under His kingship. Would you do all this and more, Father, for your glory? And now as Alan comes and preaches your word, Father, would you push away the distractions from the week uh, behind us and the worries and concerns of the week ahead that we might focus on you. And Father, you would strengthen us in the work you have for us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can turn to John chapter 21. So we started John, and we started with our first passage, first sermon in John, March the 10th, 2019. <laughs> so we're a few weeks away from finishing, from finishing this book. So uh, Nathan, you can probably dial me back a little bit. I'm much more of a loudmouth than Austin, so I don't need so much on this on this mic. Um, so yeah, this this next Sunday will be two years that uh, that we've been in John, and we might. I don't know if we'll finish next Sunday. If not next Sunday, it'll be the Sunday after. But uh, but two years, and and for me, and I hope for you, it's been such a rich uh, a rich travel as we've gone through so far twenty full chapters and really tried to do our best to mine out all these things that are there uh, so that you can get a full scope of the life and ministry of Jesus and how it applies to you, um, how it applied to them then, how it applies to you now. And so uh, for those of you that are, um, we're not here, you've got a lot of catching up to do, okay? They're all online, so if you've got many, many days to do nothing, you can catch up. But uh, anyway, so so here we are in John chapter 21, but by way of introduction, let me say this. In John 21, it's such a rich text. There's some great things to mine out of this text, uh, and we often want to rush. We often want to rush to uh, the, the reinstatement of Peter. 
Such a great text there, the language that Jesus uses, which is very interesting, because he seems to repeat himself over and over again with, with Peter and how he's reinstating him and encouraging him. And it's a special moment between Jesus and Peter because we know that Peter has kind of blundered his way through his uh, interactions with Christ up to this point. He's gotten in trouble a lot of times for things that he said, not that you and I would have done any better, but, uh, but you know, Peter's last encounter, not last encounter, but first to last encounter was, you know, uh, was that he had denied Christ, or maybe it's two encounters ago, he had denied Christ. And so then there's the resurrection. He and John run out there to investigate the empty tomb. And later when they're in this room, they actually encounter a risen Christ and he's gracious enough to show them, not just show them, but with Thomas, he says, don't just see, but touch and see because Thomas had issues with his own belief. We looked at that last week. And so we move into chapter 21, but before we get to the reinstatement of Peter, which again is such a rich text, I don't want us to gloss over these first 14 verses. I'm only going to really mine out principles of truths from nine of them, but I want to kind of encapsulate it by reading all 14 of them before we get into Jesus reinstating Peter. So you have to come next week if you want to get that. So if you have your Bibles, John 21, starting with verse 1. I'll provide a little commentary here, and then we'll get into the text. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, what you need to understand is this. This is before what we know as the Great Commission, what, what the editors, uh, what who, people who, after the Bible was canonized, and they came and they put verses next to the Greek and the Hebrew, and they put chapter headings, and they put subheadings and all this stuff. You know, uh, when they started doing that, that's where we get this idea of the Great Commission, right? So this is before the Great Commission. This is the third time that Jesus has revealed himself in the flesh post-resurrection, and he shows up here in just a moment at the Sea of Tiberias. All right, so, so understand, understand that. That's the context of what has happened. This is before the ascension of Christ. So now, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. <laughs> and they said to him, well, we're going to go with you. I mean, Peter would not be the guy that I would be following just yet. All right, He would not be the guy just yet that I would be giving myself to, okay, we've kind of been given this call. We've been kind of placed on this trajectory. Do you think fishing is the right thing for us to do? But Peter says, I'm going fishing. Eh, we'll go too. We'll follow you, Peter. So they do. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, after an all-night fishing session, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Maybe there was a, a fog in the air, you know, I don't think it was some weird supernatural Jesus closes their eyes so that they may not see, I think it was just pretty a simple explanation. Maybe it was a little too far, a little too hazy, early in the morning, fog was, was, was just hovering over the water, as it often does. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And he said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. They don't know it's Jesus. These are professional fishermen who know what they are doing. And this strange man from the shore 
is hurling out these commands to, why don't you try fishing this way? Okay, thanks. Thanks, guy. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in that kind of situation. You know, uh, my mother, uh, hopefully she's not watching live online right now, so I love you, Mom. But sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll be talking to her about, about things that I feel like I'm not an expert in, but I'm proficient in or pretty good in, and she'll say, well, you should just do this. I'm like, what do you know? What do you know about these things, Mom? I don't say that to her face because I am afraid of her and of my wife, which is her birthday today, so be very, very, very sweet to her today. So, um, but this man that they didn't know was standing on shore telling them how to do their job. So what do they do? So they cast it, and now, well, let me go back. Uh, back. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, we'll cast it out on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. That's interesting, because he was without some clothing, and then he finds out that it's Jesus, because, some, because John says to him, hey, it's, it's the Lord. So he puts on his clothes, jumps into the water. I can't, I get this, I don't know if it's in the movie Forrest Gump. But was it, was it Forrest Gump whenever he saw Lieutenant Dan on the dock? And, you know, Lieutenant Dan, and he jumps into the water, and the boat just keeps going and crashes. In. That's the image that keeps coming into my brain is that Peter's like, who is that guy? It's Jesus. Wow. We're going to put the clothes on, jump in the water. The other guys are, we're going to play it cool. We're going we're gonna to get to the shore when we get to the shore. So it says in verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Now, we won't get into a lot of this this week. I'm going to leave that for Austin to bring into verses 15 uh, through, uh, through the rest of the, the instatement passage with Peter. Uh, but I want to read it to you. When they got out on the land, there was a charcoal fire. Remember, the last time we saw a charcoal fire was when Peter denied Jesus. And now this charcoal fire is in place at the moment in time that Jesus then reinstates Peter. So I think that's significant. And so Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish... This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So that's the interaction. That's the exchange that has taken place thus far. So you can kind of let that just be in your minds and we'll kind of operate there. But I don't want us to move so quickly to thinking towards the reinstatement passage with, with Peter. I mean, it's, it's easy for us to go there because who among us is not like Peter? Who among us does not have a life that's filled with failures and blunders? But yet, Jesus keeps saying, come to the fire, let me affirm you. Let me lavish grace upon you. I mean, this is, this is what we love to read about. We love to read about a man that denied Jesus and then is reinstated. We love that, and we want to be encouraged by that. But before we rush to that, I think there's some things to mine out of these few verses. I think there's some things that might be missed at times, at least by me, that I would like to just focus on for just a second that I think will be helpful, that I think will be very practical for you. So here's my objective today. 
I want to see the redeeming value that exists in our failures and to find comfort in the reminder that our efforts are only as good as the divine component behind those efforts. One more time. I want us to see the redeeming value that exists in our failures and to find comfort in the reminder that our efforts as humans, as mere humans, are only as good as the divine component behind them with specific regard to our ministry that we're called to of bringing the word of God to the world. Okay? So that's my objective today. So a few things that I want to point out by way of some teaching points. So teaching point number one is this. Sometimes I believe that it's necessary that the Lord points out our failures before he supplies or sets us up for successes. I think it's an important thing that we are granted perspective, and that perspective comes sometimes when he says, here's an area of your life that is weak, an area of your life where you have failed. Now, Jesus is gracious to bring us beyond that and bring us to a place of success. Success meaning obedience to him, where he's working and moving in our lives through obedience and through his grace and by his grace. But nonetheless, it's important for him to say, hey, here are some areas that are weak in your life. For us to understand this, for us to come face to face and square up with the fact that we do fail, that we do fall. And I don't think anybody in here, I mean, I've heard people say before, not in here, that, that say, well, I'm a sinner, you know, or that, that I fail, that, yes, I've, I've, I've committed some blunderous actions it's important to see that our failures in order to more appreciate our needs and the grace provided to meet those needs. So don't look at your failures as a negative thing. And maybe you say, okay, you're going to talk about failures for a moment. I'm ready for that. But where are you getting this? The fact that they are in the boat, the fact that they are fishing, the fact that they've gone back to their day job, when the clear and explicit instructions, this is pre Pre-Great Commission, by the way, and I'll, and I'll prove this later, when the three years of their travels with Jesus have been to prepare them to go out as Jesus is sending them. And what do they do? They go back to the boat. They go back to the sea. Well, what do we do now? Jesus has appeared to us. We've seen Thomas touch his hands. We've seen Thomas touch his side. Okay, so now what? <laughs> Let's go fishing. I mean, for some of you, that might be a great response. Man, yeah, let's just go fishing. Let's go golfing. Jesus is alive. Let's go golfing. Jesus is alive. Let's play games. Hey, that's great. That is fine. But in this context, not so much. Not so much. Jesus is alive. Enjoy the fact that his gospel has secured even the things that you can enjoy, as simple as games, as golf, as hobbies, and all of these things. And Jesus says to them, he asked the rhetorical question, do you have any fish? Jesus knew the answer. Do you have any fish? They're out there all day catching nothing, and he comes up. Hey, do you have any fish? And I believe, I believe the reason he asks this is to draw attention to the fact that they failed. Not just failed in catching fish, but there's a reason they haven't caught fish. It's because they're in a place where they were not supposed to be. They're supposed to be about the business of evangelism, the business of, okay, you're alive. Now, Jesus hasn't said, hey, go and baptize and all this stuff, but they've been trained for three years. 
They've been trained for three years. You're to, you're to carry this work once I'm gone. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you the comforter. He's going to bring a reminder of all these things. It could not have been lost on them that this is what we're to do. In the moment where Jesus is teaching, what did they think they were being prepared for? This is what a rabbinic school did. They traveled and Jesus invested his time, almost all of his time, teaching them so that they could take what they've learned and make that application through their life. So I believe the Lord knew that they had caught no fish. This is most likely said to point out the fact that the disciples are not where they should have been. These professional fishermen failing to catch fish with a net, no less. And Jesus is pointing out the obvious. And this happens a lot. We see, and I'm grateful for this, we see failures a lot. And I'm not, for those of you that are visiting, I'm not here to rain on anybody's parade and say, I want you to come and gather in and listen, and I'm just going to tell you how much of a failure you are failure you are, and send you out on your way. I don't mean that at all. But I think there's a level of sobriety that's necessary for all of us sitting here to say, I'm not Jesus. And by the virtue of the fact that I'm not Jesus, that means that I'm broken, that I'm of this world, that I'm affected by the fall. We can, we can understand this because, I mean, we're even told that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sometimes that's quoted incorrectly. Sometimes people say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which changes the meaning of the text. Fallen could, seems to insist or seems to say that, well, I've fallen in the past because there are those who believe in sinless perfectionism and say, yes, I have fallen in the past, but I fall no more because I'm a saint now, so there's no more sin in my life, which is contrary to all of Scripture, Paul himself, I'm the chief of sinners. You know, uh, Peter loved Jesus, yet he denies him. Don't we think that denying Jesus was a sin? What about when we look at the, well, that's off notes. You know what happens when I go off notes. People have to call and correct me on things. So I'm going to stay on notes. Aaron, if you were listening, that's for you. So, um, so <laughs> and Joey, and Joey, because he likes to do that. You're not supposed to laugh at that. You're supposed to like shun Joey for those things. Scripture's filled with these things. We understand that, uh, that we all fall short. Continuous action. We're going to fall. We're going to fall. Not that we bank on that. Not that we bank on grace. Not that we live a licentious life and say, well, I'm going to fail, so might as well fail big. Obviously, that's wrong. But we should not be so presumptuous as to think that, oh, we're not going to fail anymore. But at the same time, be very careful to not just let yourself go, spiritually speaking, and say, well, this is my lot in life as a broken child. This is my lot in life as an imperfect being, so I'm just going to sin. It's just what it is. No, the Scripture is clear that we're to fight those things and pursue holiness. So David with Bathsheba, man after God's own heart. It's interesting to me, the, the, the strongest man in the world, Samson, Next to Jesus, I believe Jesus was probably pretty strong if he wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. Samson, David, a man after God's own heart. Solomon, the wisest man next to Jesus to ever walk on the earth that we know of. All of these men fell. All of these men had their issues. They're the strongest, the wisest, and a man after God's own heart. And these guys fell. David with Bathsheba. Abraham, I mean, he's plucked out of paganism, and he's set on this trajectory you know, to, to, to launch into motion all the things that we see now with regards to promises and fulfillment and the church and Israel, all this great, great, great stuff. Um, Abraham and Hagar. Moses killed a guy in anger. 
He killed an Egyptian, Peter's denial, etc., etc., etc. And you can start to put your name in there and say, well, Alan, I failed here. You know, uh, Joey, I failed here. Your life is marked with failures. Again, I'm not here to say I want you to know you're a failure and send you home. But I think it's important to come to this moment of sobriety and just square up with that so that perspective is granted, grace is recognized, that my goodness, despite the fact that I am a profound, monumental failure, (laughs) the Lord lifts me up. The Lord uses me as a vessel of righteousness. Showing that, man, I bring nothing to the table that's worthy of use apart from what Christ himself gives to me and provides and does. How many of you men, don't raise your hand, said something really dumb to your wives lately? That maybe is that I need to repent of that or hide or something, you know. Uh, Jamie, I would not say anything ugly to your wife. I have seen her pop you a good one. Just for saying, honey, you look, you look, honey, you look, you look sweet today. Don't talk to me like that. I'm she, she didn't really do that, but I would not. I, I, I would not. Um, I've been guilty of these things. I've said these things, you know, many times that I've had to repent to my wife or repent to my kids. Like how many of us parents have said or done things in front of our kids lately that we wish we could take back? I mean, these are failures. I mean, sinners sin, right? Heathens, heathens heave. I've, I read on some shirt the other day. That's what we do. <laughs> it's kind of funny. We sin. And so we wish we could take these things back. Listen, parenting has been one of the strongest contexts to serve as a reminder of my fallen state, of my brokenness. As a Christian, but still someone who's a part of this fallen world, waiting, waiting to be completed on the day of Christ Jesus. How many of you have blown or squandered clear opportunities for sharing Christ and his gospel because of selfish or, ira- or irrational reasons? That's all of us. Opportunity here. Ah, I don't have time. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to say. You know, what if they don't like me? I don't feel very confident. Wish my wife was here. Maybe she could do it. Wish my husband was here. Maybe he could talk about it. Wish my pastor was here. Maybe he could do this. Listen, one of the coolest and greatest benefits of my day yesterday was going to the abortion clinic, and I didn't stand on any kind of scaffolding or a ladder and preach the gospel. I stood under it while Antoine preached the gospel. And it was massively encouraging for me just to be there as an encourager to say, you're doing a great job, man. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for your faithfulness. Praise the Lord for your love that God has given you for other image bearers, born and unborn. But we squander opportunities too. That's failures. But listen, there's types of failures. I believe there are crippling failures and there's redeeming failures. Crippling failures, I won't belabor this point, are those failures that you never learn from. Again, going back to the text, the disciples are in the boat. They shouldn't be in the boat. They should be about the business of Jesus, even though we haven't had the great commission yet. But this should be what they're thinking on. This should be where they're moving instead of, I'm going to go fishing. That's what I'm going to do with my time. Now, granted, I wasn't there, and I understand that I don't know every single thing or all the thoughts that were in the minds of the disciples. Jesus may approach me one day and say, by the way, they were just going fishing, and while they were out there with some privacy on the lake, they were formulating a game plan to go about the business of evangelism. I I don't know that. Things I've read, things I've thought on, things I've studied have led me to believe that this is my stance right now is that they should not have been there and that's why I think Jesus says to them, have you caught any fish? Knowing that they haven't, he's basically pointing out 
the flaw that you're not where you should be. Crippling failures, those that you never learn from. We just keep going back to these failures. We keep repeating these failures. We don't learn from them, so they're not redeeming failures. They're failures that are more condemning than they are redeeming. They're crippling failures. But then there's redeeming failures, and those are the failures that serve as reminders for us to stay the course. And this is the good thing. This is the good thing. This is where the the grace of God is activated in your life, is that when you have these failures, it's not that you're written off. No, you're written in from the beginning, the, 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 the book of life, right? This is before the foundation of the world. So there's not this magic eraser that comes along and says, ah, you've, you've met your quota on failures or you've exceeded that, so I'm erasing you. You're losing salvation. I don't believe that the Bible teaches even a hint of that because that brings into question, I believe, the potency of the atonement of Christ. Peter learned a valuable lesson after he denied Jesus. Wasn't his first failure, wouldn't be his last. But I think one of the reasons he was so excited to jump out of the boat is because maybe he's reflecting on the fact that, you know what? I squandered an opportunity at the presence of Jesus once upon a time. I can't get close to him fast enough, whereas before he couldn't get far enough away from him. Paul used the reality of his pre-Christian failures, I believe, to to say things like, I do not look to what lies behind, but I look to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. These were pre-Christian, but so what? It's still failures that have been redeemable for him. Failures that he looks back and he says, man, this tells me not to go that way. This tells me this is a wrong door to open. You learn from these things. It's called wisdom. So don't let your failures define you but rather your failures can refine you they can sharpen you they can reshape you they can make you whole what about when we fail each other in relationships be sure to it be sure of this let me just give you a a helpful application for relationships be sure to alleviate the pressure of punishment so that your spouse can find redeeming value in their failure sometimes sometimes as husbands and wives or even friendships We have the tendency to punish people for their failures. Silent treatment, withholding this or that, if you know what I'm saying, in the context of marriage. You know, there are all of these things that happen as a punishment. First of all, I would say this, be very careful of that because who are you, who are you to make your spouse, who is a professing believer, who are you to make them atone for sins that Jesus has already atoned for? So be very careful of your punishment, but leave room. Leave room for, the, for, for them to f- find redeeming value in, in their failures. Let them grow away from that and move away from that. Our failures are hard to come to terms with sometimes, but the cost of squandering or the cost of squaring up to them is well worth the reward of growing as a result of them. Okay, So don't ignore your failures because it's painful to come face to face with them. But use that as a means for you to grow and to project you away from those things. Our failures do not have to define us. So at this point, the disciples, I believe, were failing in this moment. To be about the business of which they were called away from their day jobs in the first place. This was not a time or season for the disciples to use their natural rhythms. I'm sorry. This, yeah, this was not a time or season for the disciples to use their natural rhythms of life to be evangelistic. What we would say to you is you've been given the gospel. These things are good right? And so use your natural rhythms. Where do you work? 
in your marriage, in your families, in your friendships, in your hobbies. Those are your natural platforms for gospel ministry. You don't have to create and spend all these resources on all these events. Those that do, that's fine. If it works, awesome. Praise God. Kingdom expansion. But for those of you that are like me and you've got two things in your pocket, jack and squat, what you do is you use your natural rhythms and you just share the gospel at work and all of these places. These are natural rhythms. This was not that time. He was not saying, go to the boat. Go to the boat and start with evangelizing the fish. Their call was not to go back to their day job, but their call was to be full-time in evangelistic ministry which they would find out once they started that, and then the result was the world was turned upside down. They were called to drop everything and be about the business of evangelism. You know, you remember when Jesus calls them, I believe it's Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 4, yeah, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls them to ministry, and they do what? They leave their jobs. They leave their jobs. He says, drop it all and follow me. Because this is a full-time gig. So the next teaching point is this. I want to talk about when the actions from us do not reflect the faith that's in us. We've talked about these things before, but I see it, I see it surfacing here in the text. When, it, when our actions that we produce do not rightly reflect the faith that we possess. I mean, the disciples believe. We already saw that. It wasn't a question of faith in Jesus. It wasn't a question of faith in the resurrection. It wasn't a question of, of Christianity. It was a question of reconciling what that faith looks like and how it's borne out in their life. And for them at that moment, there was an inconsistency because they believe. Thomas touched and he believed. Peter, they saw him, believed. You know, uh, All of the ones in the boat, the disciples, all of them, they believed now. It said it in the text just last week. Now they believe, but now they have to reconcile what faith looks like in tandem with the calling of their life because you cannot divorce the two. You say to me, I'm a believer, I'm a believer, I'm a believer, but there's no shred of evidence in your life with regards to the call of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, then I have to question your belief. And you would have to question my belief because belief demands action. The disciples, not yet fully commissioned in Matthew 28, knew what their calling was to a degree. Jesus had made it clear to them when they would continue the work that he started. They would suffer for it, he told them. He told them that they would have the Holy Spirit to help them through it. He had given them every comfort they needed to do this work. And this was the expectation, but they were having a hard time reconciling that. And I was told you earlier that I'm going to try to help argue this point. So indulge me for just a moment. I'm going to have to read through this because I couldn't memorize it. So the disciples, as I said, with this point, their actions are not reflecting the faith that is in them. Their action is not reflecting the belief that they, that they have at this moment. So Jesus points out the fact that they're at the wrong place, indicating that these things haven't been fully reconciled, and Jesus is gracious. He's bringing them to this point. And my argument is that for three years, the disciples were trained that the disciples can't say, I was oblivious to the expectation. We've been in this book for two years next week. And you've seen it as well as I've seen it, that these disciples were exposed to or privied to all of these things that Jesus did. Things that he did that aren't even recorded in the book, according to the Bible. They witnessed all these things. And was it for nothing? Was it 
arbitrary? Absolutely not. Jesus collected them. He called his disciples, these 12 specifically, and he trained them in this rabbinic teaching style for three years with intention. And John, one of them, is writing of these accounts. So even if they were not there for every single moment of every single day, John is still recording all of these things. Either he's witnessed it himself with them or Oral tradition, or in that time, just people talking, other witnesses have said, and John is recording these things. So in John chapter 2, just to give you an overview, Jesus turns water to wine and teaches us that Judaism is an empty religion and will leave you empty as well. And it says the disciples believed. They were there. In this moment, his first miracle, the disciples were there to witness this all to build a robust faith for them, all for them to build up an apologetic so that they can give a defense. John 3, Jesus taught that a man must be born again in order to be reconciled to God. The the disciples knew this. If I were to say to you, church, we want to equip you to do evangelism, but one thing I do not tell you, let's say you knew nothing. We're starting with you from scratch. And I told you all these things about presuppositional apologetics. I told you all these things about the way you can interact with someone, about the demeanor you're supposed to have, about a way to kind of get to the root of the issue. But I never say to you, well, what you need to explain to them is they have to be born again. You would say there's a glaring problem in your evangelistic teaching. Out of the gate, Jesus is making sure they understand a man must be born again. This is for Nicodemus, yes. It's for anybody who would believe. But the disciples, in their teaching and in their training, had to know this. John chapter 4, the disciples learned that Jesus' mission was to do the will of the one who sent him and to accomplish his work. This is what Jesus tells the disciples. In John 4 and 5, Jesus performs miracles to further validate his own deity kind of a critical component of what they needed to know in order to give a defense for the hope that is in them. By the way, this man that we're going to die for, this gospel, according to him, that we're going to die for, we believe it because he is God. uh, John 6 and 7, Jesus further affirms deity, his deity, with audacious statements like, I am the bread of life, and no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then he further clarifies the mechanics of salvation. This is important stuff for the disciples to understand. John 8, Jesus teaches us on sin and grace, the events of a woman who's caught in adultery. In the same chapter, he continues his I am statements by saying things like, I am the light of the world. He teaches them about slavery, break, the slavery-breaking power of truth and what, is meant to, what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. In John 9, in this chapter, Jesus uses a miracle to teach theology because they ask, who was blind, this, who had sinned, this, this, this blind man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. But this was for a greater purpose, that God may show his grace. So he's teaching them this great theology lesson, which is kind of important as they're being prepared for ministry. In John chapter 10, Jesus teaches on his role as a shepherd and his oneness with the Father. John 11, Jesus pulls back the curtain even more on his deity by waiting on an extra day before Lazarus uh, was raised from the grave. Why? Because rabbinic teaching then, it was a uh, Jewish understanding in rabbinic teaching then, that the Spirit of God hovered over the corpse for three, or the Spirit, sorry, the Spirit hovered over, not, not Spirit of God, the Spirit hovered over the corpse for three days. And on the fourth day... 
That person was, was really, really officially dead. So Jesus came the day after that time period was over just to prove that he was, in fact, God. In John 12, Jesus teaches the disciples about the significance of having his presence now because they will not always have it when he teach, they will not always have it. And he teaches them that those who serve him will be honored by the Father. John 13, Jesus puts on the uniform of a slave and washes the disciples' feet, showing them what must take place for all men to be saved. Kind of important things for them to see. And this is just a, a, a quick snapshot of what they were taught, how they were lessened. John 14, Jesus labors to communicate the necessity of the gospel through him and him alone to be reconciled to God the Father. John the 15, the disciples learn that apart from Jesus they can do nothing. Remember that, I am the vine, you're the branches. Kind of an important part of their training, an important part of your understanding when you're witnessing to people. John uh, 16, the disciples learn what true joy is as Jesus alludes to the resurrection. He shows them that joy is not given to be experienced in tandem with sorrow, but it is in fact the transformation of joy or the transformation of sorrow. John 17, through his prayer, Jesus reveals his glory. His objective is rescuing the souls of men and his perfect unity with the Father. He teaches them. John 18, Jesus brings prophecy to its fulfillment by standing before his accusers as a lamb silent before the slaughter. John 19, Jesus satisfied the holy wrath of God and settled the debt for all who would ever believe by dying on the cross according to the scriptures. And then in John 20, we see the crescendo of redemptive history as Jesus conquers death and the grave and appears to the apostles and bolsters their belief. Now, we read these things and we say, ah, oh, these things are for us, man, these things. And you're right. We read it and say, these things were for this world to see that they might believe. And we say, you're right. But don't miss the fact that during all this time, Jesus is very intentional about what he's teaching the 12. Because theirs was the role and responsibility at a very specific time with a very specific task to turn the world upside down. And what are they doing? They're fishing. They're in a boat on a lake. If Jesus had labored to reveal these things to the disciples and called them to leave their jobs and to take up a new calling as apostles to turn the world upside down, why are they in the boat? And I think the same question can be turned on you and I. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been made new. We've been given eyes to see so they're no longer blind. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. We're new creatures. Then why would the things ever in our life go back to normal if we've experienced all these things? Be careful that your Christian life doesn't give way to a dualistic tendency. Be careful that there's not this line of distinction between your Christian life and your secular life. Be careful, as we've said before, that... Your life is not on this path, and you accessorize the mission. You accessorize Christianity when it fits the context. But rather, your life should be on mission, laser-focused on Christ, about the mission, about the gospel. And then things that happen to come along, they can be accessories to those things. And one example of how that works. My mission in this life is to glorify Jesus Christ, soli deo gloria. That is uh, the glory of God alone. That is one of my and your missions in this life. 
to be intentional in every way. That's the mission. So I'm here in everything that comes my way, everything that I cross, I have to look at it through that lens. I become a husband. What does that mean? It doesn't mean I'm derailed. It doesn't mean, well, I'm going to entertain this for a while and do the husband thing and be a good husband. We'll get back to mission. No, my wife becomes a part of that mission and I become a part of her mission. And then our marriage becomes this gospel platform. You have your jobs. You have all, all of these things, which we all do. You know, and we become laser focused on those. And we have to be very careful. The mission is what the mission is. Hey, God gives us a job, whether it's great, whether it's lucrative, whether it's digging holes, whatever it is, God gives us a job. It's like, how can this fit the mission? Because otherwise you're dualistic. And then people don't recognize you for what you're called to be unless it's in the right context to be recognized. That's a, excuse me, that's a problem. <clears throat> There's a difference in keeping the mission central versus accessorizing the mission. The final point is this. You need more than just what you bring to the table if you want to catch fish. Now, again, go back to the text. I told you this is, I, there's some things in this text that I think are there that I want to mine out, that I want to interact with, that I think is happening. So, again, they're at the Sea of Tiberias. They're on the boat. Jesus is at the shore. Jesus calls out to them, have you caught anything no, we haven't. Cast your net to the right side. They catch in a haul. They catch in 153 large fish. Great, great, cool stuff that's going on. And we, we, we drew attention to the fact that Jesus asked the rhetorical question, have you caught any fish? And why we think that's there. Why does he, why does he ask that question? And we've drawn attention to the fact that the disciples were not where they should have been. And allow me this. I don't know that this is the author's absolute intention, but I think it's a very true reality here. So if you allow me to kind of entertain this for a moment, because it is a biblical principle, again, the author has a very specific intention. I don't know what else the Holy Spirit might be revealing or applying, but here's one, I think, is that you need more than just what you bring to the table if you're going to catch fish. I can't help but see there might be a correlation between the fact that disciples were called to be fisher of men and yet they're in a boat fishing for the wrong thing and not finding success as professional fishermen that maybe that maybe maybe that's what jesus is getting across is if you do what i tell you to do what i've trained you to do what comes out of the water will be a bit different fish for men rather than fish for fish or fishes. That's a double plural, and I'm right, Tina. <laughs> they knew how to fish, church. They knew what they were doing. They knew when to fish. They knew the best time to fish. They knew how to fish. They fished with a net. You know, they knew what they were doing. They knew the technique. They knew where fish would be. And yet they caught zero fish. And I can't just dismiss it and say, well, that happens sometimes, even with professional fishermen or professional anglers. I get that. I don't, I don't think that that's, we can't just chalk it up to saying, ah, it's just a bad day. It's just a bad day. I think there's a correlation between the fishing trip they were on and their call to be fishers of men. Could it be this? Could it be this? That what is being taught here is that we're called to be fishers of men, but our efforts alone and our human component are merely human. You ever seen that video, uh, 
humans are amazing. There's always these YouTube videos that say humans are amazing, and they're doing all these cool tricks, whether it's parkour or whether it's singing, whatever talents. I mean, there's some pretty amazing things that humans can do. And I think about people and what we do bring to the table because God has gifted us. God has made us very unique. We're, 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 we, we do a lot of really great stuff. You may be the smartest person in the room. You may be proficient in apologetics. You may be fearless. You may be driven by conviction. You may have more passion than 10 other people in this room. You may have a capacity for loving others that leaves everyone else in the dust. You may be the most hospitable person in the room. You may have the thickest skin in the room. You may be the poster child for sincerity and compassion. But there's a problem. The problem is that's not the only thing that we bring to the table. As broken, finite, not Jesus people, we also bring our sinfulness, our brokenness, our inconsistencies, our powerlessness, our hypocrisy. We bring our weaknesses. We bring our double standards, our false witnesses. We bring our selfish motives, and we bring the idols of our hearts that's the baggage of what it is to be, a, to, to be in this broken world. We're a believer that has not yet been re, re, relieved of this sinful nature. We still have this sinful nature that one day we will be rid of this burden, but at the moment we still carry that around. There's still this awful reality that I am frail, and I'm a sinner, and I fail. Human effort alone with the expectation of supernatural outcome is impossible. Human effort alone with the expectation of the supernatural is impossible. In other words, you set out to be a fisher of men on your own terms. Don't expect to catch anything. Rather, the human effort working in tandem with the supernatural is the design. Let me read these things and we'll close. There's a human component and a divine component, which we've talked about before. Very simply put, we plant, we water, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians. And who brings the increase? God. Very simple church planting paradigm, right? We plant, we water. God brings the increase. We contend for the faith. We give a defense for the hope that's in us. We share the gospel. That's planting. That's watering. We disciple, plant, or watering, or, or, or try to make disciples. Then God applies the supernatural. God awakens faith. God imparts faith and life to whomever he, whomever he wishes, those who would believe. If you are going to succeed in being fishers of men, you must not neglect the divine component. But I don't think that that's necessarily always our problem. I think sometimes our problem is that we neglect the human component. You see, it's one thing to say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this thing all by myself. I don't think anybody would raise their hand and say, I'll take care of this without the help of God. But I think all of us can raise our hand and say, there are many times where I just say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to do my thing, God, you do your thing, you're better at it anyway, and that's a problem. Because it denies the fact that there is a human and a divine component that by design works in tandem. And what I mean by that is very simply this is that we are brought out of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, and we are commissioned as well to be light in the darkness. And who has he commissioned to do those things? Believers, flesh and blood. He says, be light in the darkness, be sought in light. Let them, see, let them see your good works, so that what? They may see our good works and glorify our God in heaven. We're doing these things. We're, sought, we're planting, we're watering. We're doing this, and God brings the increase. So there's a human component and a divine component in these things. The disciples would eventually reconcile their belief with their calling. 
It wasn't long after this encounter with the risen Christ on the seashore and the Sea of Tiberias that they would turn the world upside down. So remember this. When you fail, leave room for the redeeming value of that failure. Because God doesn't bring things to pass in our lives arbitrarily. Be aware that your actions are most always an indication of your convictions, of your faith, of your belief. Be sure that for the glory of God, all might see the reconciliation between your belief and your calling. And then finally, as you labor daily for the sake of the gospel, rest easy knowing that the the success of the work you are called to do is not contingent upon your human effort alone, but the divine effort. And that's very, very hopeful news. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder today of the reality of the frail state of humanity. Lord, that we are broken, that we fail often, and that we will continue to transgress, we will continue to fall short of the glory of God. But for those in Christ, not living a life of licentiousness, which begs the question if they're in Christ, for those, there is grace. There is grace that has already been provided. There is grace that has already been purchased. Salvific grace. Grace so that when we fall, that you help us to see the error of our ways and show us how that moment, that failure, although it doesn't intimidate you, it doesn't scare you, it doesn't ruin your plans, it doesn't frustrate your will, it is still wrong nonetheless, but yet something that can be redeemable and something that can move us in a direction towards holiness and purity and godliness. Lord, I pray that we would not be guilty of being where we're not supposed to be as your children. Lord, we would make it our business to be about the gospel work that you've designed and proven to be necessity. And Father, we thank you for a time that we could celebrate you today. Hopefully, We pray that you've inhabited the praises of your people, that you've been made much of. And we all leave here better, in a sense. In a sense that we've learned more, that we've taken a moment to look within ourselves and see if there are areas of repentance that need to be expressed or acted on. That we might be ready for the next day to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.